We're studying Luke. As part of our study of Luke, we're picking out passages that demonstrate characteristics of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that are applicable to us. And today we're going to look at chapter 6 of Luke. Not all of it, we're, we're picking parts of the, church, of the passage because we want to focus on those aspects of what Jesus is that we can apply to our own lives. The passage we're looking at specifically is traditionally called the Sermon on the Plain. If you're familiar with the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the most well-known sermon in the history of the church. It's, it's Jesus' great proclamation with the Beatitudes and many passages that for us have been memorized and had a significant role. Luke has a much more abbreviated sermon and some believe it's the same sermon. I personally don't. I believe it's a different sermon. There is similarity in content, but Jesus would have, with all of his preaching, duplicated some of his his subject matter and would have said many similar things at different sermons. And the passage says the location is different. So if you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 17. Jesus has just called the apostles and they've been named in the preceding verse. And then in verse 17, it says, he went down with them and stood at a level place. That's how the title of the Sermon on the Plain has come about. And a large, by the way, that's not an airplane. That's a flat plane, just for you literalists. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, in other words, from all over. And they had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those troubled by evil spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him, healing them all. And looking at the disciples, he said, and here is Luke's list of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in the day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how the fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And woe to you when all men speak evil of you, for that is how the fathers treated the false prophets. This section of the Beatitudes is very similar, obviously, to the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes there. And if you were going to summarize the Sermon on the Mount and much of this content, you would say that real righteousness is unexpected. It, it, it doesn't fit the pattern that the Jewish people had come to expect. It, it's significantly different even than what humans naturally think goodness is. In other words, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, you've heard it said this, but I'm going to tell you there's something much greater that you don't expect that's much more significant. Here in Luke, the Beatitudes take subjects and, and say that they are unexpected as well. In other words, you're blessed if you're poor because you can yet inherit the kingdom of God. You're blessed if you're hungry because you could be satisfied in God's kingdom. 
You're blessed if you weep now because you can look forward to the laughing that will come in fellowship with God. In other words, there is this unexpected surprise element that keeps coming up throughout that it's just not what we naturally think. And woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. In other words, there is this eternal perspective that changes how we look at our situation today. If today is difficult, we can still be blessed and encouraged because of what we know from Scripture about what the future holds. In other words, that, that eternity changes our response to our circumstances today. And that's an unexpected reality that Jesus is teaching because it is so important that we look at the world through an eternal perspective instead of an immediate one. When we see life in the context of what God offers and what God gives, then that changes our perspective today. If today is all we have, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, then let's eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. But if, if there is a reality that goes beyond this life, if there is, is truth about eternality, if, if God has a plan beyond our few days here on earth, then that changes our perspective on things now. So if it's hard now, but I'm serving Christ and have the expectation of being with him eternally, that, then that changes my perspective on the difficulties I have today. And it changes my perspective on righteousness today. But I want to focus this morning on the next section in which he describes love. Frankly, I wasn't going to originally do this. I, I had another plan for today from Luke chapter 6. But when I realized it was Valentine's Day, how do you not speak of love on Valentine's Day? Cause, cause, because it's probably my least favorite holiday. It, it's, it is... It's just a holiday that has danger, danger, danger posted all over it because I just, fortunately, I have a wife with, who has very low expectations. But if, I don't know about you, but, but it's just a holiday that scares me. You know what I'm saying? And now it's going to be freezing. You can't go out to dinner. What do you, I mean, did you buy, it's, so it just seemed appropriate we'd talk about love. So join with me, if you will, in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 31, in what Jesus says in this great sermon about love. First, we're called to love unselfishly. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If, if the Beatitudes were unexpected, this paragraph is even more unexpected. When you... Think of love in earthly terms. You think of a transaction. Why do I love my wife? Because she's beautiful. She feeds me. She's nice to me. Why do I love anyone? Because of all the things they do for me. 
In other words, in the world, when we think of love, it's a transaction. I give, they give back, and it works because we both give so liberally. And the more liberally we give, the better it is. And that's how we treat love most naturally. And, and Jesus shatters that idea like China on a brick floor. He says, I, I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Love, love people who want harm for you. And you think, well, you know, I, I can kind of fake it. I can, I, can, I can act like I love them. I, I can, you know, I can say bless their heart or something. But he carries on. Do good. It, it's not just a sentiment or an emotion. It's active to actually do good to people that hate you. Um, think of ways that you can serve them. Think of things you can do for them. Bless those who curse you. Speak well of them who speak ill of you. When others criticize you, do you respond with a critical response or biblical love means you still find something nice to say? And pray for them. Pray for God's mercy, pray for God's grace, pray for God's blessing for those who mistreat you. You, you run through this list and we who have been in the church have heard it many times and we can so easily pass over it. But when you stop and, let me make a suggestion, if you put a face on each command, is there an enemy in your life that you don't want to love? Or those who hate you that you wouldn't want to do good for? Or there are those who have cursed you about whom you should speak blessing and those who have mistreated you that you should respond by praying. He, he heightens it in verse 29. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other also. Allow them the opportunity to do even more rather than strike back. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. These, these are statements that, that run counter to everything within us. We, we have this natural need to defend ourselves, this natural need to, at the very least, protect ourselves. And Jesus is calling us to a, 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 an attitude of love that, quite frankly, seems almost foolish. But you know what strikes me about this? Jesus experienced every one of these and, and he demonstrates it in his own life. Did he have enemies? Yeah, the, the religious leaders. And yet when Nicodemus came to him, he told him how to have eternal life. Did he have those who hated him? Yes, he did. But he continued sharing his truth with them and giving them an opportunity to hear. He spent all night praying and for people that had done him great harm. And when he was struck in his last days before the cross, he turned his cheek. And when they 
took his cloak and, and bet over, cast dice over who would get it. Even though he had the power to take anything back, he allowed it. In other words, when you look at this list, it has an eerie correlation with things that Jesus experiences himself. And yet he says to us, don't respond you th the way you think you would. Instead, verse 31, the famous golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you. Well, my first response when I hear that is, well, I mean, I wouldn't do those things to other people, right? So it, that doesn't, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm nice to people, so I, other people ought to be nice to me. But the reality is, let's be honest, don't we all have times when we speak ill of someone, when we have anger towards someone, when yet we want them to respond to us graciously. Frankly, another thing we'll do here is, is we'll say, well, this is how I would want to be treated, but we fail to understand the other person's situation. In other words, part of what he's saying is, if you were in their position, how you, would you want to be treated? Let me give you a simple example. What, what if we just had the student ministries stay all night? The youth, the adult workers who volunteer to help the youth looked a little tired and stressed. They, I'm not going to say they look bad, but they look like they'd had a very long night. And if, if, if you encountered one of them and, and, and you had a perky response and they sort of growled back at you, you know, you might think, well, what's your problem? But if, if you put yourself in their position with no sleep and just fatigue, you'd think, well, give me a break. I was up with teenagers all night. Now, that's, that's a relatively small illustration, but, but it goes beyond that. How about someone who's going through great crisis? How about someone who is experiencing financial difficulties, health difficulties, homelessness, unemployment, disease? If you were in their position, how would you want to be treated? A number of years ago, I sat with some friends whom I'd known for a long time, and, and they were confused by some things that I had done, and, and I frankly could not explain myself. To do so would have, would have sounded defensive and inappropriate, and I finally said to them, all I wish you would do is give me the benefit of the doubt. I, you, you can't know my circumstances. For me to tell you my circumstances would be condemning of other people, would come off as selfish. I, I don't want to do that. But, but can you just give me the benefit of the doubt? And oftentimes, the golden rule just means that we give other people the benefit of the doubt. He'll expand on what it means in the coming verses. In verses 32 through 36, he says, love is not only unselfish, but it is merciful. Love mercifully. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Love in the transaction. In other words, 
Initially, he says, if, if you only give when you expect to receive back, if, if your love is only a transaction, if your love is something you only do because you know you'll be repaid, then that's not really love. That's simply a transaction. And that's what the world does. In the business community, we talk about trading chits. In other words, I do you a favor, you do me one. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. And, and you know what's sad is sometimes we bring that home. Sometimes even in our marriage relationships, our relationships with our children and our relationships in the church, sometimes what we do is say, well, I've done this for you, therefore you're obligated to do this for me. I, I've been nice, you should be nice. And in fact, you should be at least as nice as I was, maybe just a little bit more because I view my niceness more highly than you view yours. In other words, the, there is a reality that this transactional mindset can slip into even our most significant personal relationships where we keep score. We check the balance. And not only do we not give other people the benefit of the doubt, we actually measure how they've responded and decide how we'll respond in the future. He says, if, you, if you're expecting repayment, what credit is that? Everybody does that. And he comes back to the theme of the previous passage. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High because... He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. So be merciful just as your father is merciful. See, that's the point of mercy. Mercy gives in spite of. Uh, mercy doesn't keep count. Instead, mercy overlooks the negative in order to bless and give what is good. And Jesus is saying that the love that he calls us to is, is a love that, like Jesus, is merciful. And rather than, than keeping score, it abundantly responds in blessing. And the reason we would do that is because our Father is. It's, it's what we see when we see Jesus on the cross. The very life of Jesus, as will be told in the Gospel of Luke as well as the other Gospels, is a moment-by-moment -moment demonstration of what it is to love mercifully. Because while Jesus is treated like a hero briefly when he doesn't give people what they want or he says things they don't like, they are readily willing to turn on him even to the point of murdering him. And even on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. As you see the life of Christ, you see moment by moment a love that in spite of his perfection, continues to give. And in spite of the people's frailty, he continues to love. It is a love of mercy. Then in verses 30 through 7 and 38, it's a generous love. Love generously. 
Don't judge, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Love generously. When we judge, we deserve judgment. When we condemn, we make condemnation our standard. And notice he's turned now to issues of the heart. Because we Christians are pretty good at, at acting the right way. So we can act loving. We can act kind. We can act mercifully. But here, as he finishes this section, he goes to the art issue and says, don't even condemn them in your heart. Don't even judge them in your thoughts. That's God's job. Instead, give. Why? Because it'll be given to you, not by the objects of your love, not by those who have harmed you, but by someone who most or much more significant. God himself will repay that. God himself will fill the void of love in our lives caused by others. As I was reading this this afternoon, we were we kind of moved all the schedule up in order to make this, and I was in a little bit of a panic, and I was reading this and saying, Lord, what, what will we say this weekend about this? What struck me is I, I even sometimes love God in, in a way that's insufficient like this. I sometimes say to God, God, I... I, I I'm not happy with the way you've loved me. I, I, I don't like the circumstances you've given me. And, and in, in light of all that I've done for you, Lord, it just seems like you should do more. We, we grow unhappy with God because we, we look at the balance of his love and say it seems a little insufficient right now. Uh, we tell others of our disappointment over God or maybe we stop pursuing him because of disappointment as if somehow, as if somehow we've come to the conclusion that he's loved less than we have. You ever thought about the absurdity of that? The fact that, that we would complain that God hasn't been adequate in his love toward us in, in spite of all that he's given through general grace, living in a beautiful world, through specific grace and the blessings he given to us and in his saving grace through what Jesus did on the cross, how could we ever look at God and say, Lord, I've been keeping score and you're not coming out too well, Lord. I really think you owe me on this one. And, and if we would have the nerve to do that to him, how much more readily will we do it to those close to us where we say to our spouse, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think you've kept up your side of the bargain. Or, or we're critical of our kids because even though they're kids, they haven't loved quite the way we thought they should have. Or other Christians whose deficit in their account is so shocking to us that we feel it entitles us not to love them the way we had loved them in the past. 
First John chapter 4, verse 19 sums it all up. We love because he's first loved us. We love other people the way he loved us. And our love, by God's intention, is defined by the kind of love he demonstrated to us so that on this Valentine's, it's not about loving people because of what they do for us. It's about loving people, especially that special one, the way we've been loved by the God of the universe through his son. And red hearts and, and roses and, and candy and all of that is well and good. And, and, and I don't mean to knock it. If, if you love that stuff, glory, hallelujah, enjoy it all. But Jesus is calling us to a love that is something entirely different supernatural love that is so powerful that it changes people's lives his love for us changed us and we can love others in a way that will point us to him that's the love he has please pray with me father we confess that your love is almost indescribable to us it is so significant as to be hard for us to understand that you loved when we didn't love you and you gave your son when we had nothing to give you and father I pray you would forgive us that we so often we so often hold other people to a different standard and and that even though we've been loved unselfishly and mercifully and generously we keep score and love only as a transaction. Change our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.